Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's guest is Gabby Barbariti, FAU's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute's Director of Outreach and Engagement. Growing up in South Florida, Gabby was always called to the sea. In fact, during high school, she earned her dive master certificate and quickly became a dive instructor. She found that though she loved diving with people and explaining the oceanic denizens, she herself wanted to learn more. So Gabby enrolled at Florida Atlantic University and found a calling in the shark lab. She decided to continue her schooling all the way up to her PhD, and along the way, life threw a couple of twists. Incidentally, this is when I met Gabby. She was actually my TA or teacher's assistant in one of my classes at Harbor Branch. In this episode, we chat about diving in submersibles, what to do when you have to change your PhD thesis a year or two into the game, and all about Vibrio vulnificus or flesh-eating bacteria. Here's Gabby. Gabby, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I kind of want to jump right in with you. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, Your research and your career kind of has covered so much. So first off, I want to go back to the beginning. How did you get into marine biology and was there a defining moment? That's a great question. So um, I was born and raised in South Florida. And so I fell in love with the ocean at a very early age. Um, I grew up, you know, snorkeling. And as soon as I uh, was old enough, I got scuba certified and spent lots of time in the water. And um, actually, uh, I worked as a dive master and a scuba instructor for many years. And I always loved telling people about the ocean and about all the cool creatures that we'd see on our dives. And uh, the more I did that, the more I realized how awesome these environments were and uh, how much I wanted to share them with people. Did you graduate high school and then decide to become a dive master? I did. Actually, um, while I was in high school, uh, I went uh, for two summers to the British Virgin Islands and worked on a sailboat as a dive master. Uh, And so I actually got certified one summer and then I went back to work for the next summer. And so that's when I really just decided that I I loved being in the water and teaching people uh, about the ocean. I feel like that's like a dream a dream situation. I'm going to go live on a sailboat and then I'm going to teach people, I'm going to dive and I'm going to teach people how to dive and about the ocean. That's really awesome. It was super cool. Okay. So you decided wrap up dive masters and that kind of like piqued your interest in marine biology as a career. So did you come back stateside and go back to school? I did. Um, I started my bachelor's degree at Florida Atlantic University. And um, while I was doing that, I decided to volunteer, and so I worked with um, the shark research lab there. And so, of course, like any student, you have to start out washing glassware and uh, cutting up little scraps of fish to feed or uh, things to feed the fish, and, um, right. and slowly became more interested in, in research and got to do more hands-on things. Was that in Dr. Kajura's lab? It was. So that's just completely during your undergrad, and that's and you kind of fell in love with sharks. Is that kind of how that panned out? Yeah, that was my original interest. I, I wanted to do shark research. Uh, and so that was the perfect lab to be in. 
Um, but then when I was a senior, I heard about Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, which mm -hmm. is an FAU campus that's up in Fort Pierce. So about mm -hmm. an hour and a half north of the main FAU campus in Boca. And they have a program called Semester by the Sea. And it's for um, students at any university, actually. They just recently opened it up to any students. So you don't have to be at FAU. And you can come and spend an entire spring semester here. And all of your marine science courses are taught by the researchers at the Institute. And so I came up for that. And uh, it was just amazing to see all the different fields of research and to get to do all these hands-on, pretty complicated labs and, and get to go in the field. Uh, and it was really eye-opening just how many different possibilities there are in marine science. There truly is. So what was some of your favorite classes while you were at Harbor Branch? Ooh, that's a good question, too. Uh, there's a class called Marine Biodiversity. I think that's probably one of the favorites among most of the students that take it. You basically go uh, through the entire taxonomic tree of all of these uh, marine organisms. You start at algae and you end in marine mammals. And every week is a different lab. And you get to go out in the fields and either collect or observe the animals. And so you go seining for fish and do plankton toes and you go bird and, and dolphin watching. It's just super cool. I know I took that class during my time at Harbor Branch. And it, was that was that the one that like there was four different teachers that cycled through? Yes. That was, in, yeah, that was a really incredible class. Makes it interesting. And then the other one, did you take the research cruise too? Yes. Yeah. So... There's another course called the Oceanographic Experience, and you basically go on a research cruise, which is so cool as an undergraduate, and you go out to sea. Um, now they're running them in, in the Gulf of Mexico, so you leave out of Tampa, and you spend uh, two days out at sea, and you get to collect all these different animals and uh, identify them. And then the students actually do a research project and present a poster like a month later. It's a very quick class to all the researchers at, at Harbor Branch. So that was a really cool thing, too. Yeah, that was it was a really good experience to see truly from start to finish in a very abbreviated manner of, you know, what you could possibly do research on and to actually go from data collection to analysis and all the statistical analysis that comes with that and then presenting a poster in front of you know your colleagues and your professors so it was that was a really unique experience for sure yeah so you did Harbor Branch semester by the sea and just fell even more in love with marine biology is that and from there did you get your master's I did so um I actually well, between those things Harbor Branch also has a summer internship program and so okay. stayed in that too um, worked with um, Dr. Brian LaPointe on harmful algal bloom research. We were looking at algae that were growing over uh, coral reefs in Florida and kind of smothering out some of the corals and the sponges. And uh, so we did some research on that. Um, and then for there, I decided to go for graduate school. I knew it was something that I wanted to do uh, for a long time. And I actually, for my PhD research, I wound up working uh, in a microbiology lab here, which again was not something I had ever really thought of doing. Uh, my project was actually really cool. So I studied a type of bacteria called Vibrio vulnificus. And a lot of people don't know that bacterium, but you may have heard of the flesh-eating bacteria that's been mm -hmm. in Florida. 
Yes. So um, every year, Florida has the highest number of these infections, and it's a, a pretty serious hazard if you do become infected. Uh, however, no one's monitoring these bacteria in the environment. And so we set out to do the first ever study looking at these bacteria in the water and figuring out how people can become infected. Okay, so what are the primary avenues of getting infected? Well, that's a really great question. So they have the name flesh-eating bacteria, but that's right. not actually true. It's not like sticking your hand in acid and it's going to corrode your flesh. The way that you become infected is either you have an open cut or an open wound and you stick it in water where these bacteria are found mm -hmm. or you consume them like from eating raw oysters. Okay. So you can only get it from eating raw things or if you have literally a raw cut exposed to the environment. Exactly. Okay. So are they found in all fish tissues or is it just primarily filter feeders? Did you kind of look at that? For uh, eating them from getting sick from seafood, you mean? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, too. So this is a side project um, that one of my students worked on. Okay. Uh, so we know that filter feeders like oysters accumulate the bacteria, right, because they're filtering lots of water. Right. But, uh, and we know from my research, which I can talk more about in a minute, that these yeah. bacteria are found on the surface of fish bodies. And so if okay. you're an angler and you get a cut on your hand and you grab a fish, you directly contact it. But people okay. always wonder, is it actually in the muscle tissue of the fish? And so we did a study where we filleted the fish and uh, we used sterile techniques to remove that um, skin layer. And we found that it wasn't in the meat if you did everything in a sterile way. Now, if you use the same knife to cut through the fish and then cut off that skin layer, or if you took your fillet and you slapped it back on the cutting board, you could basically re-inoculate uh, that tissue. That makes sense. But who who actually sterilizes their knife between, you know, cutting the skin off and then cutting the meat? So no one. <laughs> yeah, right. So don't don't eat the sushi. You need to cook it first. And it, cooking it completely kills the bacteria. Completely kills it. OK, so what else did your research uncover in your Ph.D.? So um, our main focus or my main focus was trying to figure out how people can become infected. And so the first thing that we set out to do since no one had ever uh, looked for these bacteria on the east coast of Florida, is we sampled water and sediment from all around the Indian River Lagoon, which is an estuary. Uh, and we looked at if there were any differences in location on where these bacteria are found, and then also if there was a difference in seasonality in other areas where these bacteria were found, um, say like in the northeastern part of the United States, they disappear in the winter because they can't tolerate cold temperatures. Mm. Florida, it's summer year round, basically. And right. so um, sure enough, we found that they're present year round in our waterways. Okay. And um, another thing that's important to note is that they are naturally occurring bacteria. So they've always been here and they always will be. And pollution isn't actually introducing them into the environment. So it's a tricky thing to control. Um, but the other thing that we found was that it is related to the salinity, their abundance is related to the salinity of the water. And so they like brackish waters around okay. uh, 10 to 20 parts per thousand. And they're not actually found in the ocean contrary to probably all the headlines that anyone's ever read about them. Right. They're not at the beach. <laughs> yeah. 
you're more likely to encounter them in the lagoon uh, next to a freshwater uh, discharge source. Interesting. So if it's too salty, that that will kind of kill the bacteria. And similarly, they can't live in any freshwater. Exactly. Has there just been an uptick in encounters? Like, why is this, you know, I've seen this more recently in the news more and more. Is this just kind of always been about the same levels? And I realize that you just said that nobody's really studied it before, but I feel like it's, it's kind of become more prevalent recently. And is that just because bacteria levels may be up or is that just because the news kind of found it and that, and that's what we're seeing? I think it's a lot of different things. So cases in emergency rooms have been reported since the eighties. We've had pretty good reporting since then. Okay. As reporting methods get better, cases tend to also increase because they're getting logged. Okay. Um, Another thing is that once the media, just like you said, um, their attention is turned on to a topic, they're looking for these stories and you're hearing more about them. Okay. But I certainly think that, um, and you know, it's hard to say without having a baseline because no one has done these before, but I would say that, um, Kate, that their abundance in the environment is likely increasing as we have warmer and warmer weather, more and more fresh water um, discharges and pollution into some of our estuaries we're making these environments a little bit more favorable for them to exist. And so studies, you know, 10 years from now are gonna be really cool because we can look back and see what they were, you know, when I did my research and, and how they've changed. So from the 80s, we have data from the 80s that it's been reported. Has that kind of been the same from year to year? You kind of have the same amount of reportings from the hospitals each year, or that's also increased with the discharges? Um, I think, Maybe in the last 10 years, we've seen a slight increase. But another part of this research, so we looked for where they were and how they might change over time and seasonally. And then the real interesting part and what um, got me to go into this project in the first place, being a shark person originally, Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to look at fish. And so um, fish carry these bacteria on their skin. So just Mm -hmm. like we have bacteria and microbes that live on our skin, um, they're not actually hurting us, they're just part of our natural microflora. And the same is true for fish carrying these Vibrio bacteria. And okay. so we set out to do a survey and caught 600 individual fish, one at a time. So we wow, a hook and line, just one by one. Yep, so we couldn't use a cast net or a stain net because we couldn't disrupt the mucus layer. Right. And the microflora. Okay. So we had to do it one at a time. <laughs> That's impressive. And, um, we would get to get some really good fishing tips then. <laughs> yeah, I learned how to fish. I never knew how to fish before this project. And <laughs> by the end, I was like tying knots and casting and all these things. Oh, that's so fantastic. The things you learn. Right? <laughs> I know we still get like, you know, older guys would come up to me while I was fishing and they would say like, oh, do you know this? And I'm like, yeah, actually, there's this living there and this living there. And that's <laughs> we caught all of this. I've had a lot of experience fishing lately. I've caught 600 fish. <laughs> yep. That's amazing. Okay, so you caught... You- you're out fishing and you catch 600 fish and you analyze each one. Was that just involving like you took a swab and kind of took a sample of their mucus layer on their skin? Exactly. So we take two samples. Uh, The first one was a a swab down the side of their body. And that kind of simulated if you have a cut on your hand and you touched it, that's what you'd encounter. Okay. And then the second sample, we took a fin clip. And so um, that kind of simulated if you got poked by one of the fin rays, what, um, you might encounter in like your tissues. 
Okay. And a fin clip is usually done with just like a really small, it's kind of like a hole punch, but smaller, right? Yeah, we just used scissors and we just snipped off, you know, like a centimeter of the, the fin. Okay. Like tissue sample. The good thing about microbiology is you don't need a lot of samples. <laughs> You're working on the micro layer. Mm-hmm. We would bring all those back to the lab and we would grow them up overnight to see mm-hmm. what and then uh, we would test each fish to see if they were positive or negative for uh, this Vibrio vomithicus. What did you find? How many of these 600 fish had the Vibrio? It's a really great question. So it depends on where you're fishing. And so hmm. um, we tested two different sites. One was Harbor Branch. That was our control. And so it's an area that is not very developed. It's a natural shoreline, no major freshwater sources. The salinity was usually above 25 parts per thousand, so likely uh, out of the range of Vibrio. And sure enough, they're rarely recovered here, except for one month where we had a ton of rain, and then um, almost all the fish here were positive. Okay. Now compare that to uh, our other site was right at the base of the Indian River Main Canal, which is the main drainage canal through the city of Vero Beach. And there, the salinity was anywhere between 5 and 15 parts per thousand, so right in their range. And sure enough, almost every single fish that we caught there was positive. Wow. It really depends uh, where you are if you're likely uh, to encounter these bacteria. I know you mentioned earlier that it's, you know, on their skin, like we have microflora on our own skin, but is it truly either beneficial or benign on their skin or is it, is it detrimental to fish? Do we know that? Some species of Vibrio can infect fish. Vibrio vulnificus often doesn't. That one's more of a human pathogen. Um, There are about 100 different species of Vibrio bacteria. Vibrio is a genus. Mm -hmm. And um, one that you might be familiar with, Vibrio cholerae, is the causative agent of cholera. And so, again, major human pathogen. Um, But in aquaculture, a lot of times they have problems with Vibrios causing infections in their fish. So it really just depends on the species. But this particular one that infects humans, and for the most part, the ones that infect humans don't typically infect other marine animals. Interesting. So so you can tell the difference between the species of Vibrio underneath a microscope. What is there like, you know, one or two defining characteristics that that separate them out, or does it require like more analysis than that? Well, the great thing about microbiology is that they have all sorts of different types of media. And so what we would do is we would plate out our samples onto a type of media called Chromagger Vibrio. And uh, each different species would grow a different color. Mm. Easily count colonies and tell how many of each type were there. Okay. So what was the color of your species? It was a beautiful teal. All right. (laughs) So anytime you had a teal teal slide show up, you knew that was that was your man, and that's what you counted. Interesting. Exactly. That's really fun. That's really nice that you didn't have to sit there underneath a microscope and try to <laughs> try to count them. They're super tiny. <laughs> yeah, that would be really difficult. Okay. Well, good. Yay, media and different cultures. <laughs> yeah. Actually, our microbiology is just so amazing. There are so many cool things that microbiologists do, and all these different tools and types of materials that they use is it's really fascinating when you think about it just how tiny microbes are and how they can detect them 
And still, only about 3% of all bacteria in the world can be cultured. So there's still so many things that we hardly know anything about. Oh, my gosh. It's kind of nuts to think about. I know the thing that always gets guests when I'm telling them about, you know, like the microflora on these fish and on their bodies. It's like, just like we have on our bodies. We have like five pounds of bacteria in our bodies and people always, you see them like start itching. <laughs> right. Like all of a sudden my scalp, I just, I need to itch it. <laughs> I mean, good. Not everybody realizes that we are, we are our own biomes. True. So where, where was your research published? I mean, I saw, I saw you in the newspaper quite a bit, kind of spreading the word about Vibrio and how to prevent getting infected. Where else can your research be found? Yeah, well, that was uh, probably, in my opinion, the coolest part of my study. So the more we were doing this research, the more we were realizing that no one here understood um, these issues or, or were aware that these bacteria were out there. Uh, and so I made a pretty conscious effort to try to get that information to the public. And so when I first started my work, a fisherman actually died uh, from being infected up in Melbourne, which is just a little bit north of us. And I remember reading the newspaper and seeing uh, that his wife was quoted in saying that he'd been fishing in the lagoon his entire life and they never once heard about these bacteria. Mm. And so as an effort to try to tell people what we were finding, um, we worked with a lot of local news agencies. So um, in the beginning, I started out working with reporters um, and consulting on their stories. Toward the end of my time as a student, I actually wrote a couple columns, guest columns in the paper uh, to try to get the message out. And then we also worked with a lot of um, agencies to try to produce like fact sheets. I had a fact sheet published through Florida Sea Grant, which was mm. really cool. Uh, so it can be found online as well. Um, and we worked with the health department and then other um, medical agencies to try to make sure that the people that were treating these cases and receiving people that come in with these cuts and uh, injuries are aware of these bacteria and what to do. So should you, well, prevention is to not go in the water with an open cut and do not eat raw raw animal essentially from from the wa brackish water bodies where vibrio is pro prolific correct exactly so if you do go in and you have an open cut and it may or may not be infected what if any steps can you take well the good thing about these bacteria i guess if, if there is a good thing about <laughs> the bacteria <laughs> is that they really only infect a certain risk group and so typically, if you're healthy, you're not at risk. Um, most of the cases, about 80% of people have compromised immune systems, mm. um, things like liver disease or diabetes, uh, other, other issues. Um, another thing that's interesting is almost all cases are in males. Females typically aren't at risk. And isn't it cool? Yeah. So it has likely something to do um, with estrogen. Uh, in our bodies, as well as the fact that men typically have more iron in their blood uh, and Vibrio like iron a lot. Uh, it could also have something to do with the fact that men are traditionally over the years more likely to be out in the environment and produce, participating in these types of activities. So mm. the epidemiology side of it is really cool too. It'll be interesting to see, you know, as the years progress, I feel like there are more lady anglers on the water. 
So if that number starts to shift just based on more people participating in water activities, or if the number stays the same and ladies just have a superpower against Vibrio. <laughs> but regardless of who you are, whether you're in the risk group or not, this is my little spiel as a microbiologist, it's never a good idea to expose open wounds or tissues to any environment, not just the water. Uh, and so if you have a cut, just um, put a, a watertight bandage over it and then just check it once in a while to make sure it's not um, getting wet. Uh, if you get injured while you're on the water, what you can do is as soon as you're injured, uh, you want to get out and if you're going out on a boat or kayaking, just bring a first aid kit with you. Otherwise, leave it in your car. And hand washing works really well or just washing out the wound uh, and then just dab some rubbing alcohol in it. If you get a puncture wound from like one of those fish spines or you step on an oyster and you get a deep cut, you can mm -hmm. use peroxide to clean it out. Kind of gets down in there a little bit better. And then again, stick a bandage on it, keep it out of the water. It's as easy as that. Good. That's good advice. I've definitely gotten cut by oysters more than once. So that's really excellent news that you can just wash it out and it's going to be just fine. Usually folks that... Um, they'll get cut or something and they won't treat it right away like they'll stay in the water for hours after fishing they go mm -hmm. home they take a nap they wake up 10 hours later the infection's gone septic and unfortunately these infections can be fatal within uh, about 30 hours oh my gravy not caught quickly um can either lead to amputations or if it gets into your bloodstream they can be fatal in a select group of the population but still they're very serious things but very easy to prevent Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's scary. And I always say, um, you know, they're present in any environment. So just uh, if you take necessary precautions, treat it the same way you would like lightning or rip currents or sharks. These are all things that live or occur in the environment. You're aware of it. Take the precautions. You'll be totally fine. It should not keep anybody out of the water. <laughs> that's really good advice, actually. <laughs> I feel like, especially, you know, the shark analogy, a lot of people. Get, get afraid of the water and there's no need. You just know that it's there and, and it's going to be fine. Fantastic. So is there anything else that we should know about your research? I think that's about it that I can think of. Um, we do have a website uh, on our, our Harbor Branch website specifically for Vibrio vulnificus, and uh, it has that outreach flyer that I told you about and then also some of the findings from our study. Uh, so you can reference folks there if they're interested in learning more. Fantastic. I'll put that in the show notes for sure. So when I met you, you were just starting your PhD or maybe you were a year or two into it, but you were studying, you were studying shark eyes. <laughs> I want to, I kind of want to touch on that. And then I want to go into the evolution of how you went from shark eyes to becoming the queen of microbiology. They're pretty different, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what got you interested in shark eyes? We'll start there. Cause... Shark eyes. Well, so well, I was always very interested in sharks. And as you know, um, Dr. Kajara's lab is very interested in sensory biology. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's when I started to um, become interested in, in vision, electroreception, some of the other things that they're working on there. At the time, when I first started into graduate school at FAU, I was working with Dr. Tammy Frank. You remember Tammy? I do. I took her class. Yep. Functional biology. That was a really hard class. <laughs> Functional biology. But you know what? 
I remember a lot from that class. And so maybe the harder, the better. I don't know. But it was a difficult class. It was an involved class. I guess maybe that's very involved. And she had very high expectations. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> so I started working with, um, with Tammy. And um, actually, I'll say one of the great benefits to working with Tammy is that right at the time that I started in her lab, she was doing research uh, on our Johnson C-Link submersible, looking yes. at deep sea bioluminescence. And so one of the things that got me to work with Tammy is right about that time, she asked if I wanted to come on a cruise with her. And so uh, that was how I joined her lab. Uh, which yes, was- I would like to come explore the deep ocean and go play in submersibles. Thank you. Right? <laughs> it was a sweet offer. So my first trip with her was out to the Bahamas. Um, to look at bioluminescence at about 3,000 feet, uh, and I got to make um, four dives in our Johnson Ceiling submersible. That's absolutely incredible. What um, was the coolest thing you saw on your dive? Wow, the coolest thing. Man, we saw a huge six-scale shark, which was just so insane and crazy to be looking out the window of a sub at 3,000 feet and see this massive shark. And they're so clumsy, and they just kind of, like, bump into the side of the sub. Oh, my gosh. So you were up close and personal. It's not like he was off in the distance. <laughs> yeah. And then um, on the way back up to the surface, they would turn all the lights off, and all the thrusters um, would stir up different animals and cause them to bioluminesce. And so it was just this blue-green firework show over the porthole window of the sub. And I just remember sitting there and thinking, this has to be the coolest thing in the world. That's incredible. I know bioluminescence is is really magical to watch. That's a really neat experience. It was pretty cool. So how what was it like to be in 3,000 feet of water? <laughs> uh, it's very quiet and mm. very dark. And mm. it's very cold, actually. Did you have to bundle up? You do, yeah. So a lot of the missions that they do at the sub, you know, were in the Caribbean and in really warm areas. And so you launch from the ship, right? And so it'd be like super hot in the middle of the summer and out in the middle of the ocean. And then as you would descend, it would get colder and colder. And the longer that you sat at the seafloor, colder it would get as well. And so you'd have to have layers Mm -hmm. um, keep covering yourself up. And then as you go back up to the surface, it's the reverse. It's getting warmer and warmer. And eventually you're just sitting on the, you know, the surface of the water bobbing around in a million degrees waiting for the ship to pick you up. So it was a temperature uh, extreme. Yes. I think that's something that's kind of hard for a lot of people to grasp is that there's no air conditioning on the sub because all the power needs to go to like powering the sub. Mm -hmm. So how many people are on the sub with you then? Four in total. So the sub has two compartments. It has a big bubble or a sphere in the front. And Mm -hmm. so that chamber has the um, chief pilot who is driving the sub. And then the chief scientist who is in charge of the mission. So in that case, it was Tammy. And then in the aft chamber, which is a totally separate compartment, you would have an additional pilot. And they were kind of a backup in case there was an emergency. And then um, the the second scientist. Usually it was a graduate student. Okay. I remember in Tammy's class, she was telling a story about, oh, no, I think she was, it was a video of her diving in the sub and she's leaning over the captain's chair of the sub driver. And I think she's trying to get him to grab hagfish. 
she's like they're slimy and disgusting and he didn't want to grab them and I just remember her voice like very clearly being like but it's for science and like I think he ended up grabbing him which is like one of my more funny memories from her class (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) it's for science okay so you get into Tammy's lab you want to study shark eyes and what's going on with your research then? So um, our original project, and so I guess the moral of the story is going to be that projects change <laughs> the yes. more you get into research. Yes. Uh, so that's not necessarily always a bad thing. Uh, no, I think it's a good thing, which is why I wanted to cover it, that you can like go in and think like, this is what I'm going to do because I really love sharks in your, in, in your case. And then realize, you know, a year or more in that, you know what? I don't like this. I'm going to switch it. Yep. And that there are so many different opportunities out there that I had never even known of. But um, so, yeah, so I was working originally on deep sea sharks. So we were going to do some work as part of her cruises. And then uh, around that time, they retired the Johnson Sealing Submersible. Retired in 2010 uh, because we no longer had our ship that was used to launch and recover it. And so uh, we kind of lost access to some of our deep sea critters that way. So we switched our focus to near shore and we were going to be looking at bull sharks and we we're going to be looking at their vision and how it change, how it changes as they go from juveniles that live inshore in really murky um, sort of yellow green dominated waters to um, as they turn into adults and they go offshore into the ocean into this beautiful clear crystal blue water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that project kind of had its own challenges to it. First of all, catching bull sharks. Uh, and so I guess that would have been my first foray into fishing. It's like, hello, now you need to get the hook out of the shark's mouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> so here in the lagoon, we have a lot of juvenile bull sharks. It's um, among the largest of the bull shark nurseries on the east coast of the U.S. And so we get a lot of big mama bull sharks that come into the lagoon and they pup. Usually around May and June, actually. This is a good time to see little pups swimming around everywhere. Oh, how fun. Off the go. <laughs> I didn't know that. So we were targeting the, the juveniles uh, for the first phase, phase of the project. And so um, they're fairly skittish. And so it wasn't necessarily easy to get them. We weren't using gill nets or long lines. For my project, we were just doing hook and line. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the resources that we had at the time. But um, so anyway, so we were catching these sharks. And it was kind of tricky uh, and then it was also pretty tricky to keep them alive. And so the, t- the tough thing about physiology projects is that you're trying to see how the animal's body works, right? And so it has to be working. They have to be feeding normally, so they can't be stressed. They have to be swimming normally uh, for you to even run your experiments. And we just had such a heck of a time keeping these juvenile bull sharks alive in captivity. It was something that um, no one had done before. And we'd reached out to collaborators at Mont Marine Lab and the Georgia Aquarium, and everyone was like, cool, hope it works. We have no idea how to do it. Oh, no. <laughs> so that had its own trials and tribulations associated with it. Um, and about a year and a half into my project, Tammy left to take a position down at Nova Southeastern. And I had the opportunity to go with her, but you know, I just, I loved Harbor Branch. This is where I wanted to be. I knew it was where I wanted to go to graduate school. I decided I was going to switch to another researcher up here. Okay. And that's when I met Peter McCarthy. Do you remember Peter? No. He's the microbiologist here. Okay. 
uh, I'd known him because he, you know, taught one of the classes in Semester by the Sea, but we never actually really talked. And I went to the Summer Intern Symposium. So at the end of the summer, all the interns present their research. And so I was kind of on the market for a new lab, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. His intern was up there presenting a microbiology project. And I just remember sitting there the whole time going, wow, microbiology is really cool. I don't know anything about it, but this sounds really cool. And so I caught him in the hallway afterwards, and I said, hey, I think I'm interested in microbiology. I need a new PhD project. And he said, if you want to do something on the Indian River Lagoon, I can tell you anything you do will be novel. There have not been any projects on microbiology in the lagoon. So pick something and we'll do it. And so the first thing I did was Google um, fish, bacteria. And um, the first thing that came up was Vibrio vulnificus and that a fisherman had died in the lagoon. And I'm like, all right, that's my project. (laughs) The rest is history. In its own weird way, it all worked out. It really did, though, because what you've contributed from the switch has helped. feel like it's helped a lot of people science that you know is very relatable and that people should know about and it's fantastic yeah that's what I really like about microbiology is I feel like that there's so many great applications to it and you know I also really like the the human health side of things my parents are both medical doctors and so of course when I switched from shark eyes to microbiology they were like yes we understand this (laughs) now we can chat about your work over dinner I understand this (laughs) you're jazzed about it too but it's it's a really fascinating topic and you know I think it really opened my eyes to to outreach too um which is the other happy part of the story and helped me to really get involved in that which is uh I think ultimately you know what what I really want to do okay so let's you graduated I want to back up for one second. Did you get your master's or did you, was it lumped in with your PhD? Yep, it was lumped in. Okay. For like so... a great big eight-year period. <laughs> okay, so it took you eight years to get your PhD and then the undergrad was another four on top of that, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's something that I want people to understand is that, you know, just because like, you know, school timelines say, oh, you know, four years for undergrad, two years for master's, and then four years for a PhD. It probably doesn't work out like that. No way, man. It has a lot to do with the lab that you're in and the guidance that you get, you know, from whoever you're working with. Um, And then also your research topic has a lot to do with it. And I guess my advice would have been to younger me is to really think through the research project and is it something that you can accomplish within, you know, your time as a graduate student? You know, especially if you're a master's student, you know, two to three years, you have to make sure that what you're taking on is something that, you know, you can really complete in that time period. Right. So being, having access even to what you're studying. So in your case of the deep sea sharks, that's kind of difficult to get and requires a lot of specialized equipment and time to do that. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you can definitely see why the evolution happened. And then trying to raise a species of shark that's not been raised in captivity before. Yeah. So there are a lot of questions out there. You know, there are a lot of research questions. There are so many new things that we can do. But, you know, as a student, I think it's really important to pick a project that you know you can accomplish. And then I think also, you know, who you're working with. Tammy was really awesome. But I got to say, like, Peter is just like, as soon as I started working in his lab, it was an immediate click, you know, so just getting along with your advisor and, you know, really being interested in what you're doing and, and motivated, you know, to keep going. And and I think when you start to 
produce findings that are just so interesting to you that compel you, you know, to share them with other people or to keep asking more questions is when you really know that you're in a lab or in a research area that you really just love and mm -hmm. you're going to be successful. You graduate with the great PhD. Now what are you doing? <laughs> so I was very lucky. Um, I was off for a whopping two weeks uh, after I graduated when I was asked uh, to uh, come on board as the director of outreach at Harbor Branch. I accepted the position and uh, what we were doing is we have a visitor center here. Uh, it's our Ocean Discovery Visitor Center and it's a little public museum. Did you ever come here when you were? I, yes, and I'm trying to remember if I went as a student. I've been a couple of times, so I must have gone as a student and I've been since. It's still been a long time, but yes, I have been. Well, definitely come back and for anyone that's listening, uh, come to visit us. So uh, we've totally renovated it in the last two years. And so we have all sorts of different exhibits that showcase the research that our scientists and engineers are doing. That's been a really cool opportunity too, to be able to work with our researchers here and communicate what they're doing to the public. And so translating what they're doing, um, finding things that are cool and showcasing them, uh, trying to you know teach people about science and so um so we have this visitor center and then we also have free tours of the visitor center and those are done by graduate students so as a graduate student you can either be a teaching assistant or a research assistant to get your tuition and your stipend covered and you should if anyone's listening and they want to go to grad school find a, a university that will give you that don't don't mm -hmm. pay through <laughs> through yes. graduate school uh, but we started a new opportunity called a graduate student assistantship where the grad students will work with us here at the visitor center and they give tours and they communicate with guests and they get their tuition uh, paid for. And the that's cycle. great. Yeah. When, when you get knowledgeable, educated tour guides who are excited about what they're touring, what they're showing, and then, and then they get their education paid for them. Exactly. And experience communicating science, which no matter what your research is or what field you're in, that is so valuable. It really is. And that's something that has come to my attention recently is that researchers are not necessarily really excellent at communicating what they're, what they're researching or what they're finding. And usually the questions that they're asking are important and have applicability beyond the scope of their lab. So it's really important to be able to effectively communicate or, you know, partner with, you know, a outreach center or somebody that can communicate what you're, what you're finding. So that's really awesome. Exactly. And I think that that's something, you know, this visitor center, it's such a unique thing to Harbor Branch. Most, you know, we are a university here and, you know, most universities don't have that. This is a physical destination that is an outlet for scientists to communicate their work. And so it's a really great resource and um, you know over the last couple of years we've been really just trying to optimize that and like I said by adding in these research themed exhibits and really trying to engage the public um, in all these different efforts. That's wonderful. Well I will definitely make the trip up there and check it out. What is your coolest project that you've worked on hmm. or your your uh, favorite field story to tell and it could be like I can't believe that happened day or just like that was so epic day hmm. okay um so it's another sub story okay. so I think the sub just by default has to be like the coolest thing ever right I mean yes absolutely. <laughs> so 
that's pretty hard to top. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, the work that we were doing in the Bahamas was really cool, but um, my most memorable story, um, the very last research cruise that the Johnson Sea Link submersible went on was a response to the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And so right after the oil spill happened, they mobilized the team and they sent the ship and the sub over to, you know, West Florida. And we were documenting some of the deep reefs there uh, to try to see, you know, what was there before in case the oil hit it so that we could go back and compare the damages. Right. Uh, and so we were working, uh, I think it was just north of Key West at this point. We were out for almost a month at a time. And we kind of worked all around West Florida and then we looped around and came back up um, east side. But I think we were around um, Key West. And we were diving down to about 1,800 feet. Mm. Tammy <laughs> was in the front. Mm -hmm. And she, so in the front, they have the big sphere so they can see everything that's going on around them. Okay. And then the back has a little video screen. And so you can see the feed from the camera that's up front. Okay. And then okay. you that so you can communicate. And so Tammy shouted, oh, look, a swordfish. And so I like go to my little cubby window thing and look out the window and looking, 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 and I don't see anything. Um, so we keep going on. And a few minutes later, this huge swordfish slammed into the window on the oh. sub. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it had seen the light above the little porthole. Okay. And um, I guess it went to hit at it because usually it's pitch black down there. Oh, so it was like, I'll see you. <laughs> yep. I'm going to eat you. Oh my gosh. But it didn't work. Because its bill actually got stuck. Oh my gosh! In the side of the sub. So I saw it happen, and the so usually the the sub pilot in the front is the one driving, and the person in the back is just backup. So like usually they like put on headphones, they like read a book, or like take a nap or whatever. So the guy was like reading a book quietly, curled up in the corner. <laughs> Tapped him on the shoulder. And I'm like, Excuse me, there's a swordfish stuck in the sub. <laughs> You might need to go to work now. So we looked, and sure enough, it was stuck. So unfortunately for the swordfish, all the arms on the sub face forward, so there was nothing on the side. So it didn't make it, and, but uh, we we took this thing around with us for the rest of our dive and wound up surfing, surfacing with it, and uh, everyone on the boat got to eat swordfish that night. I don't eat fish, but they were <laughs> they were all very excited for it, so... Oh my gosh. I, ever caught I, like, I feel kind of sad for the swordfish, I'm not going to lie, but that is a hilarious story. It was legal size. <laughs> what everyone kept saying, we were all like feeling so bad for it. And they're like, it was legal. <laughs> it was legal. It was legal size. <laughs> Things I'm like, oh my God, did it hit like a wire? <laughs> is it good? <laughs> we're like at the bottom of the ocean. They were dangling this fish. <laughs> wow. And you said you were at 1,800 feet? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I had no idea that they went that deep. That's pretty impressive. I think that's where they hang out. Um, and then they may come up closer at night to feed on certain things that migrate. I'm not sure. But, yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I guess that make that does make sense. Hmm. I don't know what you'll see down there. Right. It's just a whole other world. So what is your favorite part about your current job? Ooh, that's a good question, too. Um, I love this current position. And, you know, I, I think I've always really gravitated towards education and outreach. So, um, you know, 
subconsciously it was probably something that I always wanted to do. So it's really cool that I'm, I'm doing it now. But um, I really love translating science to the public. I think that not a lot of people do it. And like you said earlier, do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I like, you know, meeting with researchers and hearing their story and seeing what they do and then taking that and kind of packaging it into something that the general public can find interesting uh, and relatable and um, yeah, and just engage them and get them to want to come back and learn more and go to lectures and you know, maybe encourage people to become marine scientists. We get a lot of, you know, students that are on the fence about marine science. And um, at the visitor center, we have five different exhibits and each one is a different research area at Harbor Branch. And I always think it's so cool that, you know, when people go on these tours, they get to see that there's so many different things that you can do as a marine scientist. You know, you're not just swimming with dolphins or corals, like you're creating new medicines from deep sea sponges that can cure cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, you're creating sustainable seafood through aquaculture and you're building these underwater, you know, robots and equipment that can help us survey the ocean. So there's just so many different topics. And I just love sharing that with people and opening their eyes to marine science. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, there's just so much depth to the field that people don't realize, which is really why I started this podcast to begin with. Yeah, it's a great idea. So what's your most frequently asked question? And that we could take it back to your PhD research or at the visitor center. Hmm. That's a good one, too. I guess the most frequently asked question would probably be about Vibrio, because okay. I did so many lectures and um interviews and and things during that research and just people wanting to know, you know, what it is and how they can become infected or most importantly, how they can avoid infection. Right. And it's such a a big health concern for sure. Yeah, because people want to be able to go and play in the water and not worry about getting a flesh-eating bacteria. Yeah, exactly. It's understandable. Usually you hear more about them in the summer than in the winter. So they do have that slight seasonal correlation where they're more abundant in the summer when it's warmer, even though they are here year round. But Mm -hmm. actually just started seeing over the last two weeks, um, they're starting to pop up in the headlines. And so uh, I suspect we'll be getting a lot more uh, inquiries over the next few months. Makes sense. Folks might be seeing uh, stories about them in the paper. (laughs) You can say about them here. Keep, keep my eye out. So do you have or what advice do you have for aspiring marine biologists? And is there any advice that they should ignore? Ooh, okay. Um, well, I'll give them advice first. So uh, I guess if, if my story is told anything, it's to be open to new experiences um, and to getting as much as experience as you can. I think that's the most important thing is that, you know, all of our lives, you know, while we're going through school, we're told that we just need, you know, good grades and to study and get good grades. But with this field, you really need experience. And so at, you know, a young age, if you're interested in marine science, you should be trying to volunteer, you know, at a nature center, an aquarium, um, just try to get some experience. And then as you go through school, you know, try to get in with a lab. 
And you know what? It might not necessarily be in the research area that you're going to eventually work in, but just some experience. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to find out if you like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, after I you know, was in Semester by the Sea, I went on to teach Semester by the Sea for six years. I taught marine biodiversity and um, uh, the microbiology course. Mm-hmm. And there were several years where we would get students who would come to me halfway through the semester and say, you know what, I didn't think I, you know, I thought I would like this and I don't and I want to change careers. And I'm like, great. This is when you find that out, <laughs> you know. Right. OK, like, you know, learn about what you want to do. And, and you know, it's, it's an experience in your life. Right. So I think just get as many um, opportunities and experiences as you can and hands on. And meet people because in this field it is all who you know it is connections. It really is, and it's it's amazing how small such a big field can be, right? Like there's six degrees of separation in the world supposedly. I'm gonna go with marine bio cuts that in half. So as we wrap up, one of my favorite questions to ask is, what's your favorite sea creature? Oh, okay. Well, hands down. So my favorite sea creature and probably animal in the world is a whale shark. Mm. They're the most amazing animals in the world. Why do you love them so much? I yeah. mean, they're incredible. Absolutely. But do you have like specific reasons? I like their pattern. I think that's what's always done it for me. They're just so unique. Like how mm-hmm. can this animal that is so huge have this just amazing, you know, color pattern that's unique to individuals and they're just, they're amazing. They really are. Have you swam with them? I have. Um, oh, gosh. Many years ago now, uh, I actually went to Mexico to Isla Mujeres during the aggregation, and we swam with about 200 whale sharks. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. <laughs> that's, that's on my list. That I want to do that. It, it was just so cool. I cried. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to add? Any uh, last pearls of wisdom? Pearls of wisdom. I think that's it. I, come visit us. <laughs> Tell your guests to come, come visit us here at Harbor Ranch. Learn about science. I'm here at the visitor center. I'm happy to, you know, give people tours and and tell them more about what we do here. And you know, if if you're not near here and there is a local science center or research institute, you know, check them out online and see what kind of outreach programs they have because now you know, more than ever, these types of institutes are realizing the importance of communicating science and they're investing in efforts that try to connect people with scientists. And so use those resources as an opportunity to meet scientists and ask them questions and learn about what they do and, you know, what path they took to get into their position. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Gabby. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Now I'm off to go visit Gabby at Harbor Branches Visitor Center. And that is my challenge for you today. Is there a nature center by you that you could go visit? Even if you don't live on the coast, getting out and learning more about the wildlife in your area, the environment in your area, it's always a treat and a great way to spend the day. And I guarantee you will learn something new. I always do. So get out there, y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment under the show notes at marinebio.life or send me an email at hello at marinebio.life. 
We'll catch you next time on So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist.